0: Well, today we rejoin our study uh, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 12, and hopefully you remember that the Gospel of John starts with this incredible statement, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life is the light of men. Of course, it's recounting. Genesis chapter 1. You remember that in the beginning, God spoke into the void and light appeared one day. And God spoke and an expanse appeared a second day. And God spoke, and the waters separate in dry land appear with vegetation, with, with life, a third day. And God spoke, and sun, moon, stars, lights appeared in the sky, a fourth day. And God spoke, and the waters teemed with life, sea creatures, a fifth day. God spoke, and creation happened. And so whatever that word was that God spoke, Oh, it must just carry an insane amount of power. Holds all creation together. You know, science really only describes how nature or creation normally behaves, but not why it is, or what it is, or what it all means. Science is like predicting the arrival of the mail, but it doesn't have the capacity to read uh, what each letter contains. G.K. Chesterton wrote this. All the terms used in the science books, law, necessity, order, and so on, are really unintellectual because they assume an inner synthesis which we do not possess. The only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature are the terms used in the fairy books. Charm, spell, enchantment. A tree grows fruit because it's a magic tree. Water flows downhill uh, because it's enchanted. The sun shines because it's bewitched. Scripture reveals that all creation is the manifestation of God's word, his word of power. And so we would really like to possess that word because with that word, we could like create our own world like magic. You know, a magician speaks a word like abracadabra and stuff is like created. How cool is that? Harry Potter says, expecto patronum, and he conjures up a savior. The great anthropologist Bronislaw Malinowski defined magic as a system or program by which people endeavor to maintain control over spiritual forces. Well, if all creation exists upon a spiritual force called the Word of God, then, like all science and technology, is perhaps like the practice of magic. And most religion is magic, just plain magic. Maybe all our striving for power is witchcraft. That is stealing power and using power for which we lack any inner synthesis, meaning. Practice of magic is forbidden in Scripture. Witchcraft is as the sin of rebellion, says the Old Testament. You see, magic is an effort to control spiritual forces for your own purposes. Worship or true religion is surrender to a spiritual force for its own purpose. When God speaks a word, he speaks a word for five days and creation happens. Wouldn't we like to possess and use That word, God speaks and creation happens. God speaks and it happens, speaks and creation happens. And on the sixth day he speaks, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And did it happen? Did it? Look around. Go ahead, look. Us? (laughs) Talk about us? In the image of God? I mean, God's pretty awesome. All good, all love. You you read the Bible, absolute love. If we're in the image of God, we're not very in the image of God. I mean, it's almost as if we're we're not, like, born yet. You know, Scripture says Jesus is the exact image of God. The exact image imprint of his nature and check this out he is the firstborn of all creation and none of us look all that much like him let us make mankind in our own image and likeness Then just look at us did the word of God fail and if it did do you think maybe we should help it out somehow Did the word of God fail? Isaiah 55. My word shall not return empty, but accomplish that for which I purpose. The all-powerful word of God. Hmm. Actually, I've witnessed the power of the word. I'm not asking you to believe this necessarily, but I've spoken the word and seen people healed. I've been healed when people have spoken the word. I've spoken the word and seen demons flee. Even Satan cower in terror. I've preached, and sometimes the power of the word has scared me. I've preached uh, the word, the word of power, and yet I feel really, really weak. Usually when I speak it, I feel foolish, especially before and after. I mean, if I'm absolutely honest with you, I feel like an ass. You don't have to nod your head, Jared. <laughs> I feel like an ass. And by that, I mean donkey, donkey. Hey, I just remembered a story about a donkey. True story, okay, actually happened. This donkey came home one day and uh, this uh, little donkey said to the mother donkey, uh, his, his mama donkey, he said, Mom, I had the most incredible day today. It was just, it was just wonderful. And she looked at her, her little ass and she was very pleased because you see most people treated him like an ass. But he said, today was really great. I went into Jerusalem this morning and while I was walking into Jerusalem, people lined up on the side of the street and they had palm branches. They started waving them in the air and cheering for me and clapping for me. Mom, it was really a great day for me. The wise old mama donkey looked at her little ass with compassion and she said, oh honey, I'm sorry. But that wasn't about you. That was about the one that you were carrying. John 12. Jesus, the word of God, by whom and through whom everything is created and sustained, that word enters Jerusalem upon a little ass. And it's interesting that really in almost every culture, ancient cultures, our culture, an ass kind of means an ass. It's like a little humble horse. John 12. You remember that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Pretty amazing, pretty cool. But because he won't work for them, the Pharisees, the religious magicians, they plot to kill him and Lazarus. Check that out. Because he gives life, and they can't control him, they take life. You see, they don't know what life really is. They don't know what the word means, and neither does the crowd. The next day, a great crowd who had come to the feast, Passover feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem means city of peace. It's the capital of Israel, the city of David, Jerusalem and his, uh, and, and his temple, it's where God chose to dwell with his people, it's Jerusalem, and it's the city that's referred to as our Lord's bride. So they took branches of palm trees, he was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even, even the King of Israel, and Jesus found a young ass and sat upon it. Hosanna means save now, save us. It's from Psalm 118. They're quoting Psalm 118, and what they mean by it is, "Save us from the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans." You see, Israel was an occupied nation at, at this time, and they could really use a powerful king to drive out the Romans and the Greeks. And so they call Jesus the King of Israel, which is interesting because it's a term that Jesus never uses to refer to himself. And you remember earlier in the Gospel, they try to make Jesus king, and you remember what happens? Do you chapter six? He runs away. And so whenever people ask you, well, what would Jesus do if he was president? There's your answer. (laughs) He'd run away. He'd resign. They call out, blessed is the king of Israel. And what does Jesus do? And Jesus found a young ass and sat upon it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on an ass's colt. His disciples did not understand this at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that this had been written of him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees then said to one another, look, Look, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these Greeks, they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went with Philip and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, why does John make such a big deal out of Philip and Andrew going back and forth and, 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 and these Greeks that want to see Jesus? We don't understand. And John writes that that day they did not understand. But now, as an old man writing the gospel, he does. And so he quotes Zechariah 9. And, and in Scripture, when they quote like one line, they're usually expecting you to, to know the rest of the lines. He quotes Zechariah 9. Let's read it. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on an ass. What a weird statement. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on an ass, on, on, on a colt, the foal of an ass. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim, that's Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your captives free from the waterless pit. That's the grave, even Sheol. Return, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Do you ever feel like that, a prisoner of hope? I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will brandish your sons, O Zion. That's guys like Philip and Andrew. I will brandish your sons, O Zion, over your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. The word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. See, I think John is telling us that Zechariah 9 was happening that day, as the word of God rode into Jerusalem. Zechariah says he comes to bring peace, like the prince of peace, to Jerusalem, the city of peace, but not just Jerusalem, to the nations. Isaiah had prophesied, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. Uh, He will be called the Prince of Peace, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. No end. That means no wall, no door, no gate will be able to withstand it. That, my friends, is power. And Isaiah prophesies this, that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Jerusalem. Indeed, all flesh will gather there and worship. It's this great, incredible Old Testament hope. And check it out. The Greeks are already coming. And Jesus responds saying, now is the son of man glorified. Son of man. That's this incredible term that comes from Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel 7, God gives a son of man an eternal kingdom that all people would serve him. Ezekiel 37, God says, Son of man, prophesy to the dry bones. It's the whole house of Israel that will rise from their graves and enter the land. That's power. That's incredible power. Do you see what John's telling us? It was happening that day and it's still happening. Absolutely astounding and unstoppable power. Even his enemies utter these prophetic declarations of truth saying, check it out. Look, the world has gone after him the world. Now it's Sunday in John 12. That's the first day of the week. At the end of the sixth day of the week, a Friday, the word will cry out from a Roman cross, it's finished. It is finished. When we believe in him and when we receive him, We enter the seventh day made in God's image by the word that will not return void. John is telling us this is God's word of supreme power. That word he spoke which formed the sun, moon, and stars. That powerful word he spoke which formed you. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords conquering all creation. And this is a problem. He's riding upon an ass. What the heck? A few thousand years earlier, Scripture says Abraham saddled his ass and... Isaac wrote it to this very same spot where God provided a lamb. Surely it wouldn't have anything to do with that. This is the king of kings. Write it on an ass. That's what John and the other disciple guys did not understand that day. They thought what everything, everybody thought, a conquering king should be riding a war horse. Kings ride war horses, and he's he's riding an ass. I mean, talk about foolish, talk about foolish. Do you realize that as he rode into the city this day, so far he had written nothing down other than than, um, some words in the dust before prostitute. I mean, no instruction manual, no policy manual, no articles, no books. He had established no organization or institution to carry on his work. He had no insurance policy in case something went wrong that day. He he has a crowd, he has a crowd, and they're eager, they're ready to fight, and yet he refuses to fight because he says his kingdom is not of this world. If it was, his servants would fight, but, but it's not. He refuses to fight, although he knows, he knows that Jerusalem will be destroyed within a generation, and in six days, he himself will be cut off, condemned, lost, perished, betrayed, abandoned, stripped, flogged, crucified before a screaming crowd, a crowd that has turned on him, for he refuses to be a king that uses his power as they desire. Check this out. This is the alexaminos graffito. That's what they call it. It's one of the oldest depictions of Christ's crucifixion that, that we know of. That's Alexaminos and you'll see that's Jesus crucified on the cross, depicted with the head of an ass. Now, we don't know whether they drew this graffiti in mockery. Most people think it's in mockery, but perhaps it was even in worship. For you see, um, when you crucify a person... The object is to depict that person as an ass. We powerful Americans seem to forget that. And I think we hate that. That Jesus entered Jerusalem on an ass. And he conquered all things by looking like one. Six years ago this month, I preached two sermons, for which I got more angry, I mean, hate mail. I thought one guy was going to kill me. More hate mail than I've ever received and imagined I ever will receive. And having Ben put those messages on the website with this message so you can go back and read them if you want to or whatever, because I went back and looked at them and I thought, I, 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 no, this is true. Both sermons, or on the story, this story, from the Gospel of Matthew. The first one was titled, How to Enter Jerusalem. In it, I simply recount the history of Jerusalem, relying on scripture and history books, particularly one that I picked up at, at Borders. I displayed a chart from that book on all the conquerors that had ever entered Jerusalem, pointing out that some of the most violent were men that had called themselves crusaders. And that in other parts of the world, uh, many people refer to us Americans uh, Americans as crusaders, pointing to the fact that the U.S. has given something like a hundred some odd billion dollars to the state of Israel since 1949 and now even fights wars, at least partly, to maintain the security of the nation state of Israel and the walled city of Jerusalem. I mean, that's just an intriguing idea. You see, maybe, maybe we enter the city with our money, guns, and F-16s because we want to control the city of God just like everyone else. Well, anyway, I displayed the chart on all the times Jerusalem had been conquered. You know, Jerusalem, the city of peace, is probably the most violent city on the face of our planet. I said, perhaps it's a sign, a sign of what we do when we try to obtain the city of God with human power. I said, here's the list of conquerors, and yet this is interesting. There's one conqueror that they missed. He not only conquered Jerusalem, he entered Jerusalem and conquered all things. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And he conquered by being Conquered his power is the power to lay power down And then I just said how ironic that in the name of Jesus and his cross crusaders would try to do the very thing Jesus refused to do The very thing for which he was crucified We must think crusader means to crucify others rather than to be crucified in love for others how weird well there are many questions then and i'm sure there are many questions now like well gosh shouldn't we love israelites of course absolutely yes well shouldn't we love palestinians well of course absolutely yes well what should obama do What should Netanyahu do? What should Abbas and Hamas do? What should the principalities and powers of this world do? I don't know. What would Jesus do if he was president? I told you, he'd resign. Okay, preacher, you live in an ivory tower. Don't you understand that if we really live like Jesus, we'd die. Yeah, maybe so. Well, if we live like Jesus, we'd die, and the terrorists would win. Would they? Next verse. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a seed, a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him the father the speaker the one who raises the dead the one who creates a new jerusalem with just a word that's power pop quiz which one of these people has the most power, okay? I'm gonna show you some people up on the screen, and then I want you to judge their power, okay? From a scale of one to ten, one being the lowest to 10 being the highest for the most powerful people that have ever lived. I want you to judge the power that they have or that they did have while they lived on the face of the earth, okay? And then I want you to yell the number out. Now just do it, because I'm the pastor, you have to obey me, okay? You're gonna yell the number out after you judge them, okay, and, and their power, all right? this is is the, the first person, this is David Copperfield. He has the power of magic, that's pretty cool. How much power do you think he has? Four, what one? one. Oh, geez, geez, that's cool, Francis. Okay, four, okay, all right. This is in the next person, Albert Einstein. He has the power of knowledge, the power to harness the atom. That's nuclear power. How much power does he have? Six, eight, seven, what. Okay, five, okay, all right. Next person, next person. All right, yell oh wow, that's a lot of power. How much power does she have? Angelina Jolie holding guns, guys? Eleven, twelve, 12, whatever. I don't know. Okay, next person. Power. Ooh, he like owns the world. That's Gates. How much power does he have? Give him a number. Okay, okay. Next person. Next person. That's Alexander the Great. He like conquered the known world. How much power did he have? Nine, that's a lot. Yeah, okay, next guy. This is Caesar Augustus. Caesar, he ruled the known world. How much power did he have? Pretty much, yeah, okay, now this next guy ruled Europe. Napoleon Bonaparte. How much power did he have? Six, six six and a half, yeah, seven, something like that. Okay, next guy, next person. Ooh, Adolf Hitler. How much power did he have? Nine, yeah, he had a lot of power. Not necessarily good, but a lot of power. Next person. Ooh, that's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, he's prime minister of Israel. How much power does he have? Six, okay, he has quite a bit of power actually. How about this next person? Whoa, how much power? Now think, before you take your shoes off at the airport because of this guy, that's power, okay? So how much power does he have? He has quite a bit, right? Eight, nine, something like that, okay, next person. Ooh, this person commands the most powerful military in the history of our planet. How much power does he have? Yell it out. Eight, nine, yeah, an awful lot. Okay, how about this person? That's hard, huh? (laughs) He's whipped, beaten, naked, taking his last breaths, and he's nailed to wood. That's pretty powerless. And check it out, it's not an act. Philippians 2, verse 7 he emptied himself and made himself nothing. That's zero. You know, he didn't raise himself. His father raised him. He's entirely powerless. And yet his power in this moment is literally just off the charts, off the charts. This is the power of God. And you ask any historian, any historian that's being honest, and they will say, this man is the most influential man that ever lived. At his most influential moment right here, he even brought you to this place this morning. Napoleon wrote. The people have been gathered to us by fear. They were gathered to Christ by love. Alexander, Caesar, and I have been men of war, but Christ was Prince of Peace. The people have been driven to us. They were drawn to Him. Not driven, drawn. Sociologists point out that in any relationship, the one who loves the most Exercises the least power. The one who exercises the least power Loves the most. Jesus loves the most. And so we crucified him. And yet our lust for power And his willingness to sacrifice power revealed the ultimate power, the power of love. And God is love. The Lord said to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness, power of love. John Dillinger said, I find that a kind word with a gun gets more than just a kind word. (laughs) And that may be true unless the thing that you are trying to get is someone's heart. Unless the thing that you're trying to get is a bride that loves you. For that, you need a different kind of power, the power of romance. Jerusalem is our Lord's bride, and you, are our, our Lord's bride. If I preach the gospel while pointing a gun at your head, saying, for God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but I have everlasting light. Believe in the love of God. Believe, believe, believe. Yeah. Believe or I'll shoot a bullet through your head and you'll burn. I mean, you might say, I believe. But you wouldn't. Not in love. Do you realize that the church has always grown fastest in places where it is illegal for Christians to wield power? Or to even exist? Places like the ancient Roman Empire, or China today, which probably now has the largest community of Christians of any nation in the world. You see, stripped of power, we expose love. And that's real power. But now you don't have to be martyred in order to preach Jesus. However, you do have to be willing to look like an ass, to feel like a fool, or at least look like a fool. Paul writes, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, You know, Jesus is a seed, and he just talked about seed. He is a seed, and he is the seed, and his word is a seed. And so when we proclaim it, it feels rather foolish. foolish. You know, when a farmer plants a seed, he surrenders control. When you share Christ, you surrender control. You can't make people believe. You can't make the seed grow. You can't make their life bear fruit. Jesus is not a magic word for you to control. I think that's where we mess up so much. We share Jesus, then we try to control it and make it happen. But Jesus is not a magic word for you to control. Actually, he's the word to which you must surrender all control. And when you surrender all control, that's somehow power, power from on high. I don't know how to say this, but Jesus is not a magic word. Jesus is the magic word. Not for you to control or crucify, but for you to be controlled by and created by. Jesus is the inner, sense of, inner, inner synthesis in all things. Jesus is the meaning of all things. In Chesterton's words, Jesus is the reason that trees grow fruit. Jesus is the reason that water runs downhill. Jesus is the reason that the sun shines he is the light and the life but you see those things are not just things for you to use for your own particular purposes each is a message for you to read and each one means i love you jesus christ is the word of god and the power of god and on the cross the meaning of god's word is revealed on the cross the letter is opened and it all means I love you. When you believe it, you are made in his image by the word of God and the power of God. You see, I think all human power, all human power that is not surrendered to the Father, all human power is stolen power. But he who loves, writes John, he who loves is born of God and knows God, and he who speaks love wields unstoppable power. Even if, especially if, you look like an ass. The Word of God invades Jerusalem on an ass. The word of God romances his bride in weakness. What I'm trying to say is is that if you simply believe God's love for you and testify to God's love for others, you have more power than all the kings of this earth combined, even if, especially if, you feel like a fool. John writes that he didn't understand this that day as the word of God rode into Jerusalem on an ass. You know, John had been nicknamed son of thunder by Jesus. Do you remember that? Because John just loved power. He loved fire coming down from heaven on Samaritans and stuff like that. John just loved power, but he did not understand the nature, the inner synthesis of God's thunder. And yet, as an old man exiled on the island of Patmos, he did. For John received a vision, and he titled it The Revelation of Jesus. In the last 150 years or so, some powerful preachers have turned it into the revelation of the end times, like a book of magic words to predict the future and wield power. Words to be used and yet words that lack an inner synthesis. Words that no longer mean Jesus Christ and him crucified. As if the power of the cross had failed. And now we needed to find some alternative power. As if Jesus gives up on loving his enemies and comes back just so that he can fry their asses. As if that means we can hate our enemies, build walls and bomb people all the way to hell and do it in the name of Jesus. But you see, it's not the revelation of the end times. Read it. It's the revelation of Jesus. If you disagree with that, um, check out the book I wrote several years ago. You turn it out. You can get it on Amazon or or downstairs. Read it, and then let's, let's go have coffee. But you see, the revelation was first sent to seven small churches in Asia Minor. Jesus says it's for them and whoever reads the prophecy. At the time, those churches were persecuted. They had very, very, very little power, and yet they stood against the empire of Rome and the kings of the earth. And they testified to Jesus. They testified to Jesus, but must have felt like fools. In chapter 19, John says, Behold, I saw the sky open, the heavens opened, and a rider on a white horse. He's faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. A sword issues from his mouth. And who is he? He is the word of God, writes John. The word that these seven little churches have been called to speak. His robe is dipped in blood, for he tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Blood that is wine, wine that is blood. You see, the winepress is a cross. He is king of kings and lord of lords. An angel calls to the birds of the air to come and eat the flesh of kings and to eat the flesh of, quote, all men. Check that out. As if this word will cut the flesh from every person. The word conquers and judges, and then the new Jerusalem appears like a bride adorned for her husband, and the voice cries from the throne, behold, I make all things new, and the kings of the earth who had been slain bring their glory into that city. Pay attention. John tells those seven little churches that he saw the writer. And in the first century A.D., he says he's coming. Not he will be coming, but he is coming. Jesus said to Caiaphas, from now on, from this point forward, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see. Jesus, you see, saw, or John saw the rider on a war horse in his vision and he saw the same rider on a donkey in Jerusalem 60 years before. You see, I think he's saying that somehow in some incredible way, they're the same thing. So do you get it? The word of God is the rider on the white horse. Whenever you speak the word, that rider rides, and the word does not return void. You may feel like an ass, even look like an ass. You may look like an ass from the perspective of this earth, but from the perspective of reality, from the perspective of heaven, you are a warhorse, or better yet, you ride a warhorse with Jesus in his train. You see, you really are not an ass. Unless, of course, you make Jesus all about yourself. But you're not an ass because Jesus makes you all about Him. He completes you with Himself. You become the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, His very presence in this world. Well, these seven little churches, they conquered the Roman Empire. You realize that? That's why you're here this morning. And the word, the word is still writing. According to the US Center for World Missions, in 1430 there was one believer for every 94 persons on the planet. 1790 there was one for every 49. 1940 it was one for every 32. 1970, one for every 19. 1980, one for every 10. By 2001 one for every eight. You see the writer is writing. And the word will not be stopped. The word is spreading. But not so much in places like this powerful America. It is most powerful where it wields the least power. It is most powerful when and where you surrender power and just love your neighbor in weakness. John twelve twenty seven next verse. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing by heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, will romance all people unto myself. That is absolute and endless power. Next verse. He said this to show by what death he was to die. And that is no power. It's the power to lay power down, it's the power of love, it's this, the romance of God. And so on the night that he was delivered up, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you, take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. You see, he's writing. Right here in this room this morning. He's romancing. He's drawing you to himself. And so come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, the dark cups are wine, the light cups are juice, and place the seed, place the word in your mouth. Open the gates and let the King of glory ride in. Pray this prayer with me. You just pray it silently in your heart. Lord God, in Jesus' name and unto you, I surrender the city. Right into my heart and make me new. In other words, I confess to you my sin and I ask you to be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alleluia, what, a savior. what a Savior you are, Lord Jesus. And so we praise you because we want to, for you have romanced us to yourself. In Jesus' name, we praise the Lord God, our Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, it's President's Day weekend, and I want to end with, like, my favorite story. So, you can sit down real quick. Actually I asked Tony Campolo if this was really true and he said that it was true. He told me that on our uh, church retreat several years ago. It's about Jimmy Carter. Now some of you may not like him because he actually is a donkey, a Democrat, but he's the first guy ever voted for it. 16 years old. So anyway, uh, according to this story, uh, Tony Kempo said he heard it from Millard Fuller, who's a friend of Jimmy Carter, but back in 1980, after he had lost the election to Reagan, and I actually worked at Reagan's church, so I'm just a messed up guy, but anyway, after he lost the, the election to President Reagan, now he was feeling really down, like he just hadn't accomplished the things that he wanted to accomplish, and he was with this friend, and I think that may have been Millard Fuller. But anyway, this friend said to uh, Jimmy Carter, well, do you feel good about anything that happened while you were president? And he said, well, yeah, I do feel really good uh, about the uh, Middle East peace accords that were signed at Camp David. You remember in something like, what was that, 1978, I think, between Menachem Begin, uh, Prime Minister of uh, uh, Israel and Anwar Sadat, who is the president of Egypt. And this friend said to him, well, actually, that isn't what I meant. I mean, uh, do you feel like you did the thing Things that God wanted you to remember the thing that you told me you would do when you entered the White House. And he reminded him how Carter had said, or he had told God that he, he would share the word of God or the news of Jesus with anyone that spent the night at the White House. And uh, so Carter said, well, yeah, actually, I guess uh, I did do that. And then he recounted this night back in 1976 when Anwar Sadat had come to stay at the White House. And how late in the evening, he had gotten up out of bed, grabbed his Bible and walked down the hall to Sadat's room, knocked on the door and said, Anwar, um, could I just share some stuff with you? And they sat on the bed and Jimmy shared with Anwar the word. And what I mean by that is Jesus. Jesus. He told Anwar that Jesus loved him, that he died for him, that he longed to know him and and bring him peace. According to Campolo, they, they prayed together. History shows that Anwar Sadat changed after that stay at the White House. He went from being known as a hawk, a man of war, to being known as a dove, a man of peace. Uh, He signed, uh, just what, a couple years later, the Mideast Peace Accords with Menachem Begin. And then along with Menachem Begin, he received the Nobel Peace Prize. You see, I don't really even know if any of that matters, but I do know this, a guy named Anwar matters to Jesus. And that's how Jesus conquers the world. Not with guns, not with governments, programs and laws, not with presidents that control the most powerful fighting force ever known to man, but with a farmer named Jimmy, who plants a seed in the heart of his friend, Anwar you understand? You have that seed. And you plant it whenever you love another and tell them of, of Jesus. You know, Satan is not terrified of the kings of the earth. It's no big deal to him. A lot of them work for him anyways, I think. He's not terrified of those guys but he's terrified of you, or actually not you, but the one who rides upon you, the Word. So in the name of Jesus, believe the gospel and testify to Jesus, amen? All right, what I'm talking about is the power of love. And so if you want to stay here and listen uh, to someone testify to the power of love, you can do that. But whatever the case, remember to stick around downstairs, there's refreshments, hang out with folks, and uh, we'll see you here next week.